Open your Bible with me, if you will, please. And thank you, choir, and Megan, and everyone for that good song. But open your Bible back to 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. One of the most comprehensive statements in all of the Bible uh, that involves, includes, encompasses everything, do all to the glory of God. And yet the glory of God, as I told you, I looked it up in six or seven different reference books that I have, reference Bibles, study Bibles, and so on. Not a one of them had a note. And something that important a topic that appears 402 times in the King James Bible, the glory of God. And I could hardly find a note in a Bible study, Bible, regarding this passage of Scripture. And yet I know how important it is. It's in all of our songs. We talk about it. We throw the terminology around. And so I thought, I need to preach on it. And I began to study. And you know what I discovered is that the, there is a wealth of Scripture on the glory of God. And last Sunday morning, I preached on the subject with the idea of just defining it because I want you to understand what we mean when we say the glory of God. And I think it's a very uh, uh, esoterical, to use a big word, a very spiritual, foggy term that people use and Never think to identify or define that term. The glory of God, what is it? And so last Sunday morning, I spent virtually all the time talking about the glory of God. What is it? The glory of God is the honor that belongs to God. It's the dignity, the recognition that that belongs rightfully to God because of two things, who he is and what he has done. God deserves glory from all of his creation and universe because of who he is. And I dwelt on that, that God is holy. God is a God of love. God has all power. God has all knowledge. There's nothing that God does not know. And I tried to give you as best I could a picture, a word picture of the greatness and the glory of God because of his attributes, his characteristics, the qualities that make God, God. And then I talked to you about he deserves glory. Glory belongs to him because of not only who he is, but because of what he's done. He is the creator he, is, he made everything, which obviously means he has tremendous power, infinite power. He has infinite knowledge if he's able to create the universe and order it. He not only created the universe, but he sustains the universe. The universe continues to operate. In the book of Acts, it says that the Lord in him we live and we move and we have our being, meaning our very existence depends upon this being that we call God, G-O-D. 
And because he has created everything and sustains everything, and because he has redeemed us with the blood of his own son, then we, glo- we give him glory and we honor him. We reverence his name. We extend all the glory and honor that we possibly can to him. Then Sunday night, I continued the three-message series. Today, we'll conclude. I talked about how is God's glory revealed to us? How do we know about God's glory? Well, God's glory is revealed, first of all, through the creation itself. The heavens declare the glory of God. So you can see the hand of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God, the knowledge of God, simply by looking at the world around you. And then God's glory is revealed through the nation of Israel, Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 13. In that passage, God says, look, Israel is my glory. Never before did a nation go out of existence, come back into existence, be carried away in captivity for 70 years and survive with its culture, its language, and everything intact, its religion. And then the Romans came in 70 AD, and for the second time, Israel was dispersed. The second diaspora, we call it, this scattering through the whole earth. For 2,000 years, they wandered across the earth. They didn't have a common language. They They weren't able to practice their religion in many places. They didn't have culture that they could call truly theirs except at the synagogue, and yet they retained their identity, they regained their language, they regained their Jewish culture, and in 1948, they went back to the land of Israel. They're under attack today, but God says, look at the nation of Israel and you'll see my hand, my power, my glory is revealed through Israel. And then we talked about the glory of God's revealed in Jesus. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. And then in Ephesians 3.21, I tried to dwell on this last Sunday night. The glory of God is revealed in the church. Now, you're not going to see the glory of God driving around the streets of the average city very much. But when you come to church... The glory of God ought to be revealed. There ought to be a sense that this is a very, very important occasion and that we're here meeting with the one who created the universe, who sustains that universe, the one who gives us life and breath and being and existence, the one who has all wisdom, infinite wisdom beyond our capability of understanding his understanding, the one who has all power who could speak and a universe could come into existence. And we're here today to worship him. I hear people say, well, it isn't about me. And sometimes they really mean it is about them because they talk about them for the next 30 minutes. But really, the church is not about the preacher. And it's not about the building. And it's not even about each other. It is about the one that we're here today to give glory and honor and reverence, to affirm his goodness and greatness to us. It is about him. Glory in the church.
And people ought to come here and sense that presence of God. And when they can't, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we are in heat big trouble then because this is the place where the glory of God can be revealed in a spiritual sense to his people. Now, today, the third and last message in my little series is on the applications of that glory. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, read it with me in your Bible. You probably know it, but look at it in the words of the Scripture. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, that's a pretty broad statement, isn't it? Do it all to the glory of God. Go over to the right with me, if you will, please, to the book of Colossians. This is three or four books away. It's a little short book. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. There's a similar verse. It doesn't use the word glory, but it means the same thing. Colossians 3 and 17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, whatever you say and then whatever you act upon, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Then go back to 1 Corinthians, go left of our original text, verse number, uh, chapter 6 and verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. What, he asked the question, an exclamation question, what? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? And you are not your own if you are a Christian. You don't claim ownership of your own self, your body, your spirit, if you are a Christian. You are not your own. You are bought. You are bought with a price. The Bible says that price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are bought with a price, and therefore, in the light of that, glorify God in your body, your physical being, and in your spirit, your spiritual being, which are God's. He owns both your body and your spirit. There are many other verses I could use. I'll limit it to those two today. And the first point I'd like to make to you is number one, the glory of God is the Christian's standard of conduct. Pardon me. The glory of God is the Christian's standard of conduct. Over and over and over, people approach me as a pastor, and they'll say something like this. I just don't know if that's right or wrong. How do you determine if this is right or wrong, pastor? Well, I'll tell you, in verse number 31 of 1 Corinthians 10, The Holy Spirit has given us a clear directive on how we can know that things are right and wrong. He says the test is, do they glorify God? The Christian's standard of conduct is the glory of God. Now, it's clear in that verse 31 that we're to glorify God in even the ordinary events of life. And so the Bible says, when you eat or drink, whether therefore ye eat or drink. And I'm going to leave here like you in a few moments, and I'm going to go home, and Norma's going to prepare a little lunch, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to eat. Do we ever think that when we eat, we are to eat even, that what we eat matters in the glory of God? 
That's why some of us eat and eat and eat and eat. We're bringing glory to God, or so we think, huh? No, that's not what that passage means at all. I can promise you that. We eat to the glory of God, the insignificant, everyday, common events of life, not the big things. We're concerned about it when we're going into surgery, but what about when we sit down to the table? Whether you eat or whether you drink, ordinary, everyday activities of life. But then in the next phrase, he changes it. And what does he say? And whatsoever you do, and then look at that little word, A-double-L, all. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Boy, all, the last time I checked it, means all in Greek and Hebrew and English. All means all, doesn't it? All means everything. All is absolutely inclusive. Everything I do as a Christian either adds to or or takes from my ability to glorify the Lord. So here we have an infallible guide from God's Word for the mature, serious Christian. This is an infallible guide for determining if things are good or bad or right or wrong. It's an infallible guide. Do it to the glory of God, and if you can honestly do that with a clear conscience, an educated biblical conscience, I can promise you that uh, your life will be on track for the Lord. An infallible guide for right and wrong. Do all to the glory of God, the Christian standard of uh, conduct. See, some things we know are clearly right and clearly wrong. The Ten Commandments just clarify everything. There's no ambiguity there, no, no gray. It's all black and white. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, and so on. But there are other things that the Bible just does not address. It doesn't speak to them. And so where it does not, we need a guide that covers everything. And we have it. Does it bring glory to God? The Christian's infallible standard and guide for conduct. And where things are not addressed, the glory of God becomes that standard. So if you... If you can watch that program for the glory of God, then watch that program for the glory of God. If you can say that word for the glory of God, then say it. If you can identify with that lifestyle for the glory of God, then do it. If you can continue that relationship that you started, that you're questioning for the glory of God, then do it. If you can... if If you can drink that beverage for the glory of God, then drink up. Somebody asked me the other day, said, well, it looks like they're going to legalize pot across America. Bible doesn't say anything about pot, does it? I said, yes, it does. If you can smoke that reefer for the glory of God, smoke on, my friend. There's the Christian's infallible standard. It covers it all. All this arcane arguments that we have about things really don't they don't amount to a hill of beans. If, if you don't want to come to church but once a month, then don't come to church for once a month. I know that brings glory to God, huh? No. Come on. When you put that in as the standard, you change it from a man-centered type idea of right and wrong to a God-centered concept of what is right and what is wrong. Do all 
So every action I take is important because as a blood-bought believer who is owned by God himself twice, he created me and then he redeemed me by the blood of his son. So as a redeemer twice bought by the precious blood of Jesus and the creative hand of God, everything that I do then has significance. My actions, my deeds, the words that I speak, and sometimes a word escapes our mouth and we say, oh, I wish I hadn't have said it like that. What a poor choice of words. Or maybe it's a word we should never use. Well, we're immediately smitten in our conscience as Christians because we know that didn't bring glory to God, use that word. Even our attitudes glorify God in your body and in your spirit, the passage says. And so our attitudes must be taken into account. Does my attitude, the way I'm handling this situation, does it bring glory to God? My family relationship, think I'll just divorce him. Okay, does that bring glory to God? Is that, is that the first option in this situation? You see, that's the infallible standard for the Christian. My service to the Lord. Am I serving the Lord? Is what I'm doing giving appropriate glory to the Lord? My giving, my appearance. I know that I'm not a cool dresser. And I had somebody say to me, you know, you're, you're the last of a breed. You, you, you wear a suit every time you preach. That's not a big deal. You can preach without a suit and, and honor the Lord. But you know what I said? I don't dress for the people. I dress for the king. And I'm the king's ambassador. And so I'm going to look like the king's ambassador. The ambassadors for the United States, you know, they don't look like I look when I get home in a minute. They look like they represent the United States. I represent the king. So even my appearance, everything in life is what I'm trying to say to you. When you put it through the filter, does this bring glory to God? Whoa, does that change the whole dynamic of how we look? That changes the whole uh, worldview, if you will, doesn't it? Do I bring glory to God in what I do in every single part of it? But there's a second thing about this that I want to apply, and that is that the glory of God is the motivation for the Christian. What is it that motivates you? What is it that motivates me? Is it the applause of people? There was a man in the Bible that uh, he turned against John, and John wrote about him. His name was Diotrephes, and here's the way he described him. He loves to have the preeminence. And the new versions of that, he wants to be first. As long as he's up in front of everybody, oh, he's happy, but when he can't do that, no, Diotrephes turned against me, and John deplores that. And uh, Demas hath forsaken me, Paul said, because he loved the world. His motivation changed from the glory of God to love for something out there in the world. Now, what is it that motivates you? And what is it that motivates me? And the real standard scripturally, no matter what station we are in life, whether I'm the preacher, or I'm the missionary, or I'm the deacon, or I'm the teacher, or I'm a, just a faithful church member who may not have a title, 
when I'm out there in the business world, when I'm out there going to the bank, when I'm at, at the grocery store, when I'm visiting the kids at the school, anywhere, everywhere I am, what is it that motivates me? Is it that people are looking at other people's opinion? Does that, is that the primary motivator in my life? The Bible says the primary motivator for us must always be the glory of God. Look in chapter 6 again at that passage. Don't you know that your body is the temple, the dwelling place where the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you are not your own? Nothing that I am or nothing that I have really ultimately belongs to me. God can take it just like that, just like he did with Job to make a point with him. It all is his, even my own physical body and my spirit. And where do I get the motivation here? Verse 20, in the past, you are bought with a price. You are bought with a price. And behind me on the wall, intentionally positioned there so that you can't ever come in this building and not look at the front of the building and see the cross of Jesus Christ. And there he shed his blood, and there he bought my soul, and he redeemed me with his precious blood. And because of that, I am to love him. I heard a great preacher one time preach a message on the cross to preachers of all people. And I thought, why is he preaching a salvation message to a bunch of Baptist preachers? His name was Dr. Kevin. And he made a statement I shall never forget. Dr. Kevin that night in that message to preachers said, do you know what? If it had not been for that, I don't think I would have ever loved the Lord. But when I think of what he did for me on the cross, my heart is drawn out to him in gratitude and in love and I can, it's, the cross makes it easy to love the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm incapable of loving him as a typical, average, selfish human being concerned about me, mine, our, myself, and all that stuff. But when I go back in my mind and I look at the cross and I see the Lord Jesus Christ writhing in pain on the cross and blood pouring out of every part of his body, beaten and spat upon and cursed and hated for my sake, paying for my sins, then my heart goes out in gratitude and my heart goes out in love to the Lord Jesus Christ. If I had a thousand tongues, I'd try to put them all on the road for him because of what he did for me. If I had a thousand feet, I'd want to walk his way. If I had a thousand years, I'd want to live every one of them for his glory. Because can you imagine what he did for you and me on the cross and how it should provoke love and gratitude and emotion and heart from us? And so it's not hard to want to serve him if you go to the cross. If you look at your schedule, you can say, I don't have any time. If you look at the cross... You say, oh, I I wouldn't have any time if it weren't for him. The glory of God is the motivation for me. And number two, and quickly, the glory of God is not only the motivation from the past, but it's the motivation for the future. I'm now to live my life for his glory. 
I am to live my life seeking for people to look at my life and say, you know what? Christianity is the real thing. When I say that, some of you probably switch me off a little bit. Brother Bill, is it really possible? Is it even possible to live the life motivated by a desire for the glory of God that you're talking about? I'll give you three reasons. I know it's possible. One, through a daily surrender of my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1 says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him. This is your reasonable service, not unreasonable. If he died for me on the cross, there's nothing that he could ask of me that I should not be willing to do and want to do for him. So, so through a daily surrender of my life to him, I can live this life motivated for his glory. Number two, through developing the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. Let this mind, this way of thinking, this mindset, this worldview be in you like Jesus had. And then it says he humbled himself and became a servant. And so as I stay in God's word, as I'm faithful to be in the church services, as I'm studying and learning and developing and growing as a Christian, I'm finding out that, yes, it is possible because my mind, my thinking processes change as I fill my mind and absorb the principles of God's word. And thirdly, it's possible because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, we find out over and over, particularly in the book of Acts, that we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 says, be filled with the Spirit. And a Spirit-filled Christian, one of the ways you can see it in a person is they have a sincere and honest desire to bring glory to the Lord and not to themselves. They want to please Him in all that they do. And if I do that, this is the way to have power in my living. And by power, I don't mean some spooky, supernatural type thing. I mean power to overcome temptation, as our memory verse talks about. Power to deal with the difficulties and the obstacles of life. Power just to live in a world that is hostile to our faith the power that comes from victorious living because I'm motivated to bring glory to God and I'm not focused inward on myself. You probably remember the name Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi was, he is to India what George Washington is to the United States. India was a colony of the British Empire for over 100 years. And Mahatma Gandhi organized peaceful resistance against the British. And basically, the British were driven from the country over a long period of time. And he's revered today in, uh, in India, the second most populous nation in all the world. And Gandhi at an early age was exposed to Christian missionaries in India. And somebody quotes Gandhi. He's quoted many, many different times and sources. So he must have said something very close to this. They asked him, would he consider converting from Hinduism to Christianity? And this was Gandhi's answer. 
I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians, for they are so unlike your Christ. What an answer. I like your Christ. I would consider, consider converting and becoming a Christian, but I don't like Christians because they're so unlike your Christ. He was so gentle, and he was so kind, and he was full of grace and truth. And he always did the right thing, and he did it in the right way. And then I'll look at the people who call themselves after his name, and, and they're not doing that. I'm disappointed I like Christ, but the Christians have disappointed me because they're so unlike him, meaning they don't live to bring glory to God. They live like other people. There's a wonderful verse spoken by our Lord. I want you to turn there and view it with your eyes, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Matthew 5 and 16. And the Lord Jesus Christ said there in that passage, We call it part of the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that they may what? See your good works and, what's the rest of the verse? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. And when we're like Jesus, we glorify the Lord with our lifestyle. And that's the motivation for the Christian. It's the goal for the Christian. It's the standard for the Christian. God doesn't have six different standards of acceptability. Listen to me. Look up here and hear me for a moment. The standard is the same for you as it is for Bill Monroe and 99% of the things that we deal with. You don't have one standard for preachers. Another standard for a missionary, another standard for somebody. No, one standard. And everything you do in word or deed, in attitude or feeling, do it all, do it all, do it all to the glory of God. Powerful, a challenging statement. And yet a statement that can bring great satisfaction and great joy to your heart. You will change, you will transition in your Christian life. If you ever buy into what I'm saying right now, and if you begin to think throughout the day, does this bring glory to God? Does this bring glory to God? Before I have that phone call, I want to glorify God. Before I correct my child, am I doing it to bring glory to God? Before I spend that dollar, is it for the glory of God? Is it consistent with the character of God that I spoke about all day long last week? And when that becomes the standard, the paradigm, the worldview, the pattern, the template, wow, will life change? Will it take on a whole different hue? Because I'm not living now for me. I'm living to bring glory to him. In my body, in my spirit, in my attitude, in everything that I do. My motivation in life is to bring glory to him. What would Jesus do? And how would he do it is the question. 
Now, there's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 4 I want you to turn to this morning for my third point. The third point, the first point is the glory of God is the Christian's standard of conduct. And number two, the glory of God is the motivation for the Christian life to bring glory to Him. And number three, I end with a very solemn warning that the glory of God can be lost in a person's life. The glory of God can depart. There's a story in 1 Samuel 4. Turn there. I'll read a little bit in a minute, but for the sake of time, look up here and listen and let me tell you the story, okay? Here's the story. The nation of Israel possessed the Ark of the Covenant. You've heard a lot about it. You've watched it in the movies and everything else. That little box, that little casket-shaped box that had four uh, rods extending from it that the priests carried throughout their history. Inside it was three items, the, ten, the copy of the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone written by the finger of God, a pot of manna, and the rod that Moses had that he extended over the sea that divided the sea. And they carried this with them everywhere they went because it represented all those supernatural events. God fed them with the manna. The sea was divided so they could escape from Egypt. And uh, God met Moses and gave them the Ten Commandments upon the Mount Sinai. And so they carried that. And it represented the presence of God. In fact, it had the presence of God on it. You remember the guy who when the horse or the oxen stumbled and the ark fell off the cart and he touched the ark and he died because God was demonstrating his absolute holiness. So it was the glory of God in, 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 in a tangible sense. Now, Israel had that ark, and the presence of God was there at that ark in this little tabernacle, this tent. But the nation increasingly, over three or 400 years, had become more wicked and more wicked and more wicked. They had drifted from God. They were disobedient. They were terribly immoral. They were apostate in their beliefs. They had totally departed from the faith as God had given it to them, if you will. And their leadership was corrupted. Their high priest, the number one religious leader, was a compromiser. His name was Eli. He started out as a good man, but he became soft and compromising. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who he appointed to places of leadership, and they were corrupt and they were immoral. Women would come to the temple to worship, and they would attempt to seduce them, and they did. They took their, they would take the offerings that were offered to God and use them for themselves. I mean, these people are corrupt in every sense of the word. And God finally says, I've had enough of this immorality and this leadership. And he brings down the Amalekites, a foreign nation, very fierce, very warlike And he uses a nation that was more wicked than Israel to punish Israel. America, be forewarned. We talk about how wicked these terrorists are. Oh, God would never let them do anything. Here, we're better than they are. No, you can't say that. God has often used a more wicked nation to punish 
a less wicked nation because they were the rod of judgment in his hand. And so the Amalekites came down. There was a great battle. Israel totally was devastated militarily. They lost it. They lost it big. They were defeated. And the ark was stolen. The ark was stolen. The two young sons of the wicked high priest, they died in the battle. The old man, well up in his years, 90 years old or so, he was a very heavy man, big fat man. And Eli, when he heard the news that both of his sons were dead on the field of battle, it so overcame him, he fell backwards and he broke his neck. And so he's now dead. The army's defeated, thousands of casualties. The two associate priests are dead. The high priest is dead. One of the associates, one of his sons, Phineas' wife, is pregnant at the time of delivering. And so she hears the news that Eli's dead, her husband is dead, and she goes into labor and has a little baby. And then she dies. It's just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and it's tragedy based upon the judgment of God upon his people for their wickedness and their turning from him. I want you to read with me now. We pick up the story in verse 19. His daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, near to be delivered, and when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travail for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the women that stood by her, the midwives, said unto her, Fear not, you have borne a child, a son. But she answered not, She did not regard it. And they named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel. Why? Because the ark of God was taken, and her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark is taken. The Ichabod, the glory is gone. America was founded by Christian people. That's incontrovertible. They were fleeing religious persecution, and they came to this country seeking freedom, specifically religious freedom. They founded it on the principles of the Bible. They founded it on the principles of Judeo-Christian morality. And today we've gone so far from it. One wonders, has the glory departed in the country? A man recently wrote, famous talking head on television, there is a sense that things are coming apart. Nothing works. We have no leadership. End of quote. The glory has departed. Charles Finney was, is known as the father of the Second Great Awakening. He was a famous evangelist up north. He was the best-known preacher of his day. He would have been the Billy Graham of this time in history. Finney said these words in a sermon to pastors on December the 4th, 1843. Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. 
If there is a decay of conscience, I call your attention to that phrase, a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses interest in our religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt, the very foundations of government are ready to fall, the pulpit is responsible. End of quote. In other words, he said, the church is the one who creates the moral climate. The church is the moral conscience of the community. And when the church is slack and cold and disobedient and immoral, the glory of God departs from the land. Ichabod, the glory, has departed. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says that in the latter days there will be a great falling away. The Greek word for that phrase, that entire phrase, a great falling away. The Greek word is the apostasy. The time when people depart from the faith that they've held to be true for the centuries. The departure I fear that we are in that period of time. I don't know that. I can't say that with certainty. And I fear that our country is in the shape it's in. And Finney probably was right. If every pulpit were opening up the Word of God and teaching and preaching the Word of God, if we were clear in our moral convictions and we clearly denounced the sins of the day where people knew clearly where we stand, what is right and wrong, what brings glory to God, I don't think America would be on the downhill slide that she's on. Liberalism and prosperity theology and universalism that everybody's going to end up in heaven anyhow and departure from sound doctrine and no emphasis on holy living, and acceptance of gay marriage, and a hundred more things I could add to the list. And because the glory of God has not been the emphasis, we've slidden, we've fallen. The saddest thing that could ever happen in Florence, South Carolina, would be for people to drive up and down Irby Street and point over to a cluster of buildings where you and I met and God came and people were saved and transformed and they received hope and encouragement and instruction. And those buildings now have a few people rattling around in them. And we can't support the missionaries and we can't carry out the programs that reach people. We don't have the people. We don't have the money. We don't have the resources anymore. The glory of God has departed. We've been blessed for 44 years. 
Don't take it for granted. We're not entitled. God doesn't owe us one single thing. It's all his glory and his grace. Don't take it for granted. And determine that you're going to live your life not for you and yours and ours and me and mine, but that the glory of God will be the priority in all that you do and you say. It'll change your life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.